If you would take your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 15, the book of Acts chapter 15. And in just a few moments, we will read verses 22 to 35. Not quite wrapping up this chapter. We'll aim to do so next Lord's Day. Just in time for Advent season, okay? So next Lord's Day, we will aim to finish chapter 15, which provides a nice stopping place for a brief reprieve throughout the month of Advent and leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and uh, then we will return to the book of Acts. But for today, Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35, and when you arrive there, because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks to His people in His Word? Acts 15, beginning in verse 22, Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit these words. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, church. You may be seated. One of my favorite stories regarding Christian unity <clears throat> is a story that I have shared from this pulpit before, so please bear with me. This is just a part of being a pastor it's kind of like being a grandparent, maybe. You share the same stories over and over again. And uh, this is my favorite. <clears throat> it goes like this. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian? Or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? <laughs> he said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? 
You can tell I didn't write this. He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, fascinating. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879. Or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> Christian unity. <laughs> unity can be a delicate attribute, can't it? It's delicate. Moreover, conflict within the church, really, if we're honest, is as old as the church. Conflict internally. And while a selective reading of the book of Acts might cause us to naively believe that the early church experienced perfect harmony and peace among its members, passages like Acts 15 simply don't allow such utopian conclusions. They just don't. Last Lord's Day, we began, if you're with us, we began unpacking this section, this chapter, Acts chapter 15, in which the early church experienced what was arguably the most severe and significant internal conflict in the first century. And we're going to re, uh, present that and, and unpack that just a little bit this morning, just to build some context. Well, this morning, however, we discover that the church did not remain in conflict. And that's important to point out. The church experienced conflict, but it did not remain in conflict. A significant change takes place from Acts 15, verse 1, to Acts 15, verse 35. There is a significant transition the church undergoes. By the conclusion of our text this morning, the relationship within the church is characterized not by conflict, but by peace, by the conclusion of the chapter. So remember this, if you're with us last Lord's Day, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, immense, severe, significant, internal conflict. In the church. By Acts 15, verse 35, peace, harmony, unity. Here's the question. So here's the question I want to pose this morning as we walk through the text. I love, by the way, I love this approach. I love boiling down the thesis to a question. This is not original to me. It's not original to me, but I think it's helpful uh, to shoot with a rifle as opposed to shooting with a shotgun. And uh, here's the question I want to ask of the text, and we'll answer it slowly. Uh, we'll come, I think, to a full answer, a full-orbed answer, by the conclusion of the sermon. So you've got to stay tuned for that. All right, but here's the question we're going to ask and answer. How did the church move from severe internal conflict to unity and peace? How did it happen? We're going to make observations as we move through Acts 15, verses 22 to 35 in particular, and we're going to answer that question. How did the church move from severe internal conflict to unity and peace? If you're taking notes, we will unpack this text and even this question in four sections. And so we will walk through the text in the order of the text, and you can jot these down if you like. First of all, we will look together at the decision of the Council of Jerusalem. The decision of the council. If you're visiting with us this Lord's Day, you might have noticed that we pick up in the middle of a story in verse 22. And the story begins back in verse 1. And so here under this first segment of the text, we're going to represent the decision of a collection, a gathering of Christians, apostles and elders and others in the church in Jerusalem. So what was the decision of this council? Secondly, after we look at the decision of the council, we will identify the delivery of the decision. So there's a decision made, and then there's a delivery of the decision. So the church in Jerusalem sends a group of people, and those, those people go throughout churches, and in particular to the church in Antioch, and they deliver the decision of the council. Third, after the decision and the delivery of the decision, we will take note of what I would call the delight of God's people. 
I don't, I don't want you to miss this. So there's a decision at the council, there's a delivery of the decision, and then there's a responding delight among the members of the church in Antioch to the decision. That's significant in the text. And then finally, after the decision, the delivery, and the delight of God's people, we will conclude by examining the continued declaration by God's people. Acts 15, verse 35, concludes in the way that many texts in Acts conclude, with the declaration by God's people. And I, and I want to highlight that as we bring this sermon to a conclusion, okay? So again, just by way of review, for those of you who are jotting this down, we're looking for decision, delivery, delight, and declaration. Younger worshipers, so if we have some of our younger children in the room with us this Lord's Day morning, I want you to look for a couple of things, okay? You can look for all those things we just talked about, but there are a couple of things I really want you to focus on. I want you to be in the Bible with us, okay? So have your Bibles open. Um, and let's look together for these two things. First, who made the decision at the Council of Jerusalem? This is a trick question. Who made the decision at the Council of Jerusalem? There are a number of possible answers. There's one in particular I want to focus on in our text, okay? So who made that decision? And then secondly... How did the church in Antioch respond to the news of the decision? Now, I've just given it away. Maybe you caught it, but we'll get there in the text, okay? How did the Christians in the church in Antioch respond to the decision of the council? Those are the two things, younger worshipers, I want you to pay close attention to as we move through the text, all right? Well, let's begin by looking together at the decision. This is just a little bit of background to situate us in the context. The controversy that materialized in Acts 15, you may recall if you've been with us, involved the relationship between the believer in Christ, in particular, the Gentile, non-Jewish believer in Christ, and the law of Moses. What is the relationship between the law of Moses, the law given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses for the people of Israel, what's the relationship between that law from God and Gentile Christians, non-Jewish believers in Jesus Christ? And throughout Acts, what we've seen is there has been a kind of transition that's taking place. Early in the book of Acts, the church is predominantly a Jewish movement. Even in Acts chapter 2, right, when the Spirit of God falls on the people of God at Pentecost, upon whom did the Spirit fall? Upon Jewish Christians. This was a Jewish church. It's easy to miss that for us as 21st century Christians, many of whom in this room are Gentiles, though not all of us, many of us are Gentiles. The early church, the earliest church, was predominantly Jewish, but as the gospel was being proclaimed by the people of God, God was doing something unique. There were many non-Jews, Gentiles, who were embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit, and all of that was happening without them being circumcised. In other words, God was giving the Holy Spirit to people who had not become Jewish. That was revolutionary. And so several from the church in Jerusalem, again, this is just a little background for us. Earlier in Acts 15, several from the church in Jerusalem came to the church in Antioch, which, by the way, the church in Antioch, again, remembering way back, was a diverse church, a very diverse church. Jews and Gentiles in the church in Antioch. So Jewish Christians came to the church in Antioch, and here's what they taught. They taught that it was necessary for Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to obey the law of Moses to be saved. These Jewish Christians were saying it's fine for Gentile, uh, Gentiles to come into the church. That's fine with us. It's fine that they embrace Jesus as the Messiah, but they must be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses 
to be saved. In other words, they must become Jewish. We'll accept them, but they have to become Jewish. Well, Paul and Barnabas vehemently disagreed. They believed this was compromising the gospel. We find that out actually in Paul's letter to the Galatians and elsewhere. And so, in response to this heated debate that's taking place in Antioch, the church in Antioch send Paul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem. Okay? Because remember, these people that, that caused trouble, that stirred up trouble and confusion among the believers in Antioch, they were from the church in Jerusalem. So the church in Antioch said, fine, just go to the church in Jerusalem. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk to the apostles there and to the elders. So Paul and Barnabas go to the church in Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders regarding the issue. And the decision, the decision that was made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem was that, now don't miss this, this is important, was that it would be wrong to insist that Gentile Christians be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved. No, no, that would be wrong. They are accepted not because they're becoming Jew. They are accepted because of Christ. And they're accepted as Gentiles. That was the sticking point for many in the early church. They're accepted as Gentiles. After all, a person, Jew or Gentile, is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You may recall if you're with us last Lord's Day that, that Peter even made the comment, not even our fathers have been able to bear the burden of the law of Moses. What makes us think the Gentile Christians will be able to bear it? In other words, we can't finally obey the law. Christ has done it for us. It's part of the good news of the gospel. And so Gentiles are freely welcomed into the church by God's grace, through faith, in Christ, alone, in the same way a Jew is welcomed into the church. However, now, there's one caveat we need to add, and then we'll move on to the delivery. However, it was necessary that believing Gentiles who had come out of a pagan past, okay? In other words, they didn't grow up in Sunday school. That's not how they grew up. They didn't grow up going to church on Sunday. They have no recollection of VBS, they grew up in an overtly pagan background. They grew up sacrificing to idols, to the gods of the Roman world. And sacrificing to the gods of the Roman world was contrary to Christianity. And so it was important for the council also to recognize that although, although these Gentiles were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, saving faith is never alone. And so, if one genuinely comes to embrace Jesus Christ in faith, that person needs to live a life of repentance and obedience that grows out of faith. And uh, so, of course, the letter, of course, instructed that these believing Gentiles turn away from their pagan practices, practices like eating food sacrificed to idols. In other words, stop participating in the pagan temples. Don't do that. That's contrary to Christianity, and it's contrary to worship of the one true and living God. Don't continue to eat animals with their blood. This gets a little gory. With their blood who have been strangled. And I said last, Lord, this was not a, a prohibition against eating medium-rare steaks. It's not what this is. This is a prohibition against a pagan practice of drinking the blood of an animal sacrifice in worship to the gods. That's my understanding anyway. It's less delightful now, isn't it? Less appetizing. Don't do that. You're worshiping the one, and tr one true and living God now, and you're worshiping the one true and living God in the way that he prescribes. Don't participate in sexual immorality. And while, of course, Christians must never participate in sexual immorality, it's likely that this was a kind of sexual immorality that took place in the pagan temples through the temple prostitutes. So, 
The conclusion was they're welcomed as Gentiles on the basis of Christ's obedience on account of God's grace received through faith and, and their lives need to reflect that grace and the presence of faith and the work of Christ in their life as they turn away from these pagan practices. Okay, so this is the transition that's happening in the early church. And I want to say this as well, and, and I'll be cautious not to get too far out here, and I'll try to stay somewhere right here, okay? Um, a transition is also happening in this respect. Up until this point, the law of Moses was the direct guiding authority for the people of God. By the way, it never was a means to salvation. Never. It was misunderstood to be a means to salvation. But it never was, according to God's prescription, a means to salvation. It was, however, a guiding authority for the people of God. However, something had changed. The one about whom the law was written, the Messiah, had come. Don't miss that, church. The one about whom the entire Old Testament, as we call it, they wouldn't have called it that. They would have called it the Scriptures. We call it the Old Testament to distinguish it from the books written after the coming of Christ. The entire Old Testament pointed to, promised the coming of, foreshadowed Jesus Christ, and Christ had come. So there was this transition taking place also because now, rather than living under the law of Moses as the guiding authority, now the church, Jew and Gentile, was to live under the authority of the incarnate Christ through the apostles. Now that, this gets really complex and we're not going to go far here. But you need to know, it's not that they stopped reading the Old Testament. No, no, they continued to read the Old Testament, but they read the Old Testament through the lens of the coming of Jesus. Now the application of the Old Testament looked a little bit differently, depending on the instruction. And that's a topic for another day, but I do want to point that out to you as a church in the 21st century who still needs to prize the Old Testament as God's word, but learn to read the Old Testament through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Christ, the one about whom the Old Testament was written. Okay, so that was the decision. That was the decision of the council. Gentile believers remained in the church, not by becoming Jews, but by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, and yet that grace and the presence of that Christian faith needed to manifest itself in a life of turning away from previous pagan practices. Now, we find, secondly, the delivery of the decision. And this is where we look at the beginning of verse 22, the delivery of the decision. Verse 22, you'll notice the church in Jerusalem, this is right after the council met, the church in Jerusalem selects qualified men and by the end of verse 22, they send these men. So there's a selection of the men, and then there's a sending of these men with the letter communicating the council's decisions. And there are a few items I want to highlight for you. We can't go through all of the details on account of time. But a few items I want you to see. The letter is transcribed in verses 23 to 29. It's fascinating. The Spirit of God leads Luke to actually write the letter. Clearly, he has access to this letter. So he writes down the letter. First, I want you to notice how the letter begins. So this is the letter that the men from the church in Jerusalem are taking to the church in Antioch. This is the decision that they're delivering. Notice how the letter begins. Verse 23, the brothers, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers. You see that? who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. This is easy to miss. This is easy to miss. How do they view these Gentile Christians in Antioch? Fundamentally, brothers. Co-heirs in Christ. 
So there's a sense in which, yes, there's apostolic authority in this letter. Indeed, there's apostolic authority, but it's communicated in the context of family equality. There's an equality here that's communicated. It's not simply the apostles writing to the brothers. It is that, but it's also apostles who are brothers writing to their brothers in Antioch. Second, another item I want to mention to you, one of Luke's favorite words appears in verse 25. So if you highlight in your text, you can, you can highlight this, or if you underline, if you don't, that's fine. Forgive me for communicating what may feel to you to be blasphemous, okay? I know we all have different practices when it comes to the text of Scripture. But I want you to notice this. Verse 25, the ESV translates it one accord in verse 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. This is the same word that Luke used, for example, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, which says, which says that they were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 1, 14. He uses it a number of times. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, the church was attending the temple, and there the translation is together with one accord, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the word here communicates a true harmony. There's true unity here. You see what's being said? I don't miss this. We're starting to see the transition. The church that began in immense and severe internal conflict in Acts 15 verse 1 now is actually beginning to show signs of moving beyond that conflict to harmony, to a place of one accord and peace. And we'll continue to see this. And then third, I want you to notice this in the letter. Verse 28. They wrote these words, for it has seemed good. Now, younger worshipers, pay close attention to this. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. By the way, if it seems good to the Holy Spirit, it better seem good to us, right? (laughs) We agree with the Holy Spirit, they're saying. You'll be glad to know. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now, on the one hand, the apostles and the elders came to a conclusion. There may have been other members of the church present. At some point there is because the whole church ends up commissioning a couple of people to go from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. So I, I tend to think um, the church is gathered more broadly than simply the apostles and the elders here. But on the one hand, the apostles and the elders come to a conclusion together. On the other hand, and I think even more fundamentally, they simply came to recognize the decision of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's an important distinction. That's a very important distinction. They simply agreed with the third person of the Godhead, which I would strongly encourage we do. They agree with the Holy Spirit. We could say it this way. The Holy Spirit made the decision of the council through the apostles and the elders, maybe. So that's the manifestation of the Spirit's decision. But I think it's even more than that. And we'll look at this in just a second. Because you might recall that back in the book of Acts, how is it that the Holy Spirit is showing his decision to bring people into the church, believing Gentiles into the church as believing Gentiles? The Spirit is falling on them. That's the decision of the Spirit. And so all the apostles and the elders in the church had to do was just recognize the work of the Spirit. It's really that simple. We've seen this throughout our exposition through the book of Acts. Uh, We've seen the persistent presence of the Holy Spirit among God's people. This has been the case from the beginning. One of the primary activities also we've seen of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Not the only activity, but one of the primary activities in the book of Acts is to create diversity amid unity and unity amid diversity. Don't miss that. The Spirit is creating a church with tremendous diversity 
that experiences unity in the gospel. Moreover, we could say it this way, the Spirit is, is taking a unified people in Acts 2 and adding tremendous, significant diversity throughout the book of Acts as well. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So just to kind of skim through these texts, Acts chapter 2, remember, the Spirit falls upon the gathered Jewish believers who spoke many different languages. There's some diversity already present in Acts chapter 2, which highlights the miracle of tongues in Acts 2, which I take to be the intelligibility of the diversity of languages. Again, just a quick little can of worms, we'll, cl- we'll close and keep moving. Acts chapter 8, verse 17, the apostles came down from Jerusalem, you remember this, to a group of believing Samaritans. These were half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. These were enemies of the Jewish people. But these Samaritans then received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Again, diversity is being added to the church, but the Spirit of God continues to cultivate this in the context of unity. Later in that chapter, Philip, one of the first deacons, was led by the Holy Spirit The Spirit actually said to Philip, you remember this? Go over and join the chariot. Who was in the chariot? Ethiopian eunuch. Diversity. And this is, by the way, the Ethiopian eunuch ends up, of course, embracing Jesus Christ, receiving the Spirit, getting baptized. And Irenaeus, a second century Christian, happened to be fond of Irenaeus. Irenaeus talks about the Ethiopian eunuch becoming uh, the great missionary to Ethiopia, the first great missionary to Ethiopia. Again, diversity. The Spirit's doing all of this. Acts 9, verse 17, the Holy Spirit filled Saul, a man named Saul, who would later become Paul, the Apostle Paul. So the Spirit fills Saul, who would become the primary instrument for reaching Gentiles throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 19. By by the way, that is ironic. That is ironic. Think about that for just a second. The Spirit of God took a Pharisee as the instrument, a Jewish Pharisee as an instrument for reaching Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verse 19. Again, we're just summarizing the story up until this point and the work of the Spirit of God. Acts 10, 19 tells the story of the Spirit leading Peter, a committed Jew, right, to share the gospel with Cornelius, a Roman centurion, not a Jew, in other words, giving him a vision of unclean animals on a sheet, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, and God says, what I have called clean. Do not call unclean. Enjoy your bacon. (laughs) Amen. Amen. And then, of course, later in that same chapter, Acts 10, verse 44, the Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household. Again, that's the Spirit's testimony. The Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household, and Peter's response is just wonderful. Peter says, well, I guess we've got to baptize him. I mean, that's... I'm summarizing, but that's what he does, right? The Spirit fell on them, and and Peter ends up saying, I suppose we've got to baptize them. God gave them the Spirit. Who am I to withhold baptism from them? That's why, by the way, one of the reasons why there are these significant demonstrations of the Spirit. That gets talked about a lot today. Why Why aren't there these kinds of normative, significant demonstrations of the Spirit all the time? There are sometimes, but why aren't they present all the time? Because this is a transitional period of time in the church. And the Spirit of God is consistently bearing testimony to what God is doing. And it is indeed a new work. The same God. The same God doing a new work in His mercy. We might even say, of course, a better work. A work of fulfillment to the many promises God had given. Acts 11, verse 28. We could keep going. Let me mention a couple more. Acts eleven twenty-eight. The Spirit revealed to a prophet named Agabus. Agabus tells that a famine is coming. This is in Antioch, the church in Antioch, a very diverse church. And uh, 
The Lord reveals, the Spirit reveals to Agabus that there's a famine coming. And as a result, this ethnically diverse church ends up putting aside relief for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. It's no accident. You see what's happening. The Spirit of God just consistently pulls these different people together into one body, the church. It was indeed the Spirit who said in Acts 13, verse 2, set aside Barnabas and Saul for what would become the great missionary efforts largely to the Gentiles. And then now, okay, now full circle. Here we are, Acts 15, 28. We'll stop there. Acts 15, 28, our text, where we are told that the Holy Spirit led the church in Jerusalem to recognize the equal status of believing Gentiles in the body of Christ. It was the decision of the Holy Spirit, and it was the church's responsibility to recognize the decision of the Holy Spirit. So part of the answer, I know that's a mouthful, I know there's a lot going on, but this is, this is tremendous stuff, this, this story we find of the early church in Acts leading up to Acts 15 for us. Part of the answer to our original question has surfaced now. Remember that original question, how does the church move from severe internal conflict to unity and peace? How does that happen? How do we go from internal conflict to peace? By Acts 15 verse 35. Part of the answer is this, through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual work. In other words, we don't do it, not fundamentally. We yield to it. We recognize it. We prayerfully pursue it. But it must be the work of the Spirit of God to unite a diverse people into one body called the body of Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God. And so that's part of our answer. And I would take this even a bit further. I would say that it isn't merely that the Spirit is able and willing to rescue out of conflict. It's more than that. It's rather that the Holy Spirit uses conflict as an instrument for unity. I don't miss that. Because, because time and time again, I think, I think we, we naively believe that if we're walking in the Spirit, we'll experience no conflict. And if we experience conflict, we'll potentially conclude either we're not walking in the Spirit or, or, others, or others aren't. But it may be, it may be some of that, maybe some of that, but it may be that the Spirit is actually using the conflict as an instrument to produce greater unity. And we find that throughout the book of Acts. And if I could just be frank also, we find that throughout church history. Time and time again, church history is the story of conflict materializing and the spirit of unity wielding the conflict for unity in the body of Christ. Time and time again. There are exceptions, but consider the sovereignty, the meticulous sovereignty of the spirit of God. In addition to the decision, and now we've seen the delivery of the decision, right? That's what happened. They delivered the decision. So you had these men that now went to uh, the church in Antioch from the church in Jerusalem, and they delivered the decision. Paul and Barnabas were two of those men. Judas and Silas were the other two men. And then, of course, there are others who were involved in this. They go and they deliver the decision, and that's what's happening in the text. Now we find the delight of God's people in or to the decision. Look with me, if you would, at verses 30 and 31. 30 and 31. So when they were sent off, that is, Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Verse 31, when they, that is, when the church in Antioch, I'm sorry, no, no they, when Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas read it, they, that is, the church in Antioch, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The Gentile believers didn't merely accept the instructions. They respond to the instructions with joy. They're excited. Now, this is interesting to me, church family, because I don't typically get excited about being told, stop doing something. 
and I'm a father. I have wonderful children, tremendous children, who just like their father, do not like being told not to do something. I've, I've, in fact, I've, I've yet to meet the human being, save Christ, who submitted to the Father. I've yet to meet the human being who, when told, stop doing that, don't do that, isn't inclined to do it all the more because they were told not to. Right? But here, what are we told? We're told they respond with joy. And I think this I think the reason for this is twofold. First, the letter communicated that they were co-heirs. They were co-heirs with believing Jews. They weren't second status, second class, subservient Christians. No, no. In Christ, there now was neither Jew nor Greek, only Christian. And then secondly, secondly, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit joyfully embrace instruction from the Spirit, at least eventually. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit joyfully embrace instruction from the Spirit. We're we're, we're still to see the work of the Spirit. It was the same Spirit who led the apostles and the elders to the decision that now was bearing testimony in the hearts of these Gentile Christians to embrace the decision with joy. This is one of the reasons believers embrace Scripture as God's Word. You know the story of, of becoming a believer for me, uh, as, as with you, um, involves, in part, this very thing. At one point in time, as I was reading the text of Scripture, for me it was new, and I won't get into all the details of my conversion to Christ, but it was new to me. The scriptures were new. And I was initially, I started reading this book as a book, and a book that, that caused a level of curiosity for me. I was not a Christian, but I thought, I'm going to investigate some of this, and part of that investigation will be reading the text that these Christians believe. And so I start reading this book, and then at some point, I believed it. And I actually remember, I remember a night, and I don't, I don't have the day, right? I'm not one of the, I, don't, I just don't have that. I don't have a day and a point in time. But I do remember a, a night in particular where I, when I recognized the change. I remember reading this book, and I remember coming to realize that I saw it differently than I used to see it. That I was not reading it any longer as the words of men, but as it really was. The words and the word of God. What caused that shift? You see, the same spirit who breathed the words was now bearing testimony within me. This indeed is the word of God. And that's what's happening in the text with the decision, of course. The Spirit was at work in the council, and the Spirit was at work in these Gentile Christians. And so they received this news with tremendous delight. Now, there's another facet of their delight that I want to highlight before we move on finally to the declaration, and we'll close with that final point in a moment. Remember what this letter included, and I alluded to this a moment ago. It included activities Gentile believers were to avoid. They were not to participate in idolatrous activities of their pagan past. Now that these Gentile believers were Christians, their lives needed to reflect their repentance and their faith in Christ. Now, what I want to point out to you is that these rules then, these rules, though, were not understood to be a burden in Christ. They were understood to be a delight Why is that? And I wrestled with that this past week. I think part of it is this as well. They weren't being told, do this to be saved. The news for these Gentiles was not, look, here's God's instruction. You have to do this in order to get saved. You've got to You've got to work 
in order to become something. No, no, that wasn't the news. The news was you're rescued by grace. You're already rescued. God has mercifully snatched you from hell. He provides the obedience he demands. And he's done that in Jesus Christ by means of Christ's life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Gentile Christians, you are accepted by the God who has made you on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. Because of that, seek to obey him out of a life of gratitude. You see the difference. And that's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel, and that's how we view obedience as followers of Jesus Christ. This is gospel-motivated obedience. Why is it, Christian, that you abstain from sexual immorality? Is it so that you might earn the merit or the favor or the status of being a son or a daughter of God? No, no, no. No, I seek to abstain from what displeases my Father because I'm a son because I want to look more like, live more like, love more like, walk more like Jesus Christ who has rescued me. That's Christian obedience. And I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why these Gentile believers received these prohibitions with joy and with delight because they came from a loving father in heaven who had rescued them. Friends, I don't know how each of you understand Christianity, but it may be that you've never really come to grips with that reality. It may be that you have thought up until the present that you have to live in a certain way in order for God to accept you. It may be that, that you've considered that being a Christian is you got to stop doing all this and you got to start doing all this and work your way into the favor of God. And I'm here to tell you something that's quite a delight. And it's that, no, no. First of all, you can't do it. Now, that would be bad news by itself. But what you can't provide, God has provided in Christ. And so we receive his gift simply by faith. And the Spirit of God indeed begins to change us and works within us. And our lives do go from one being characteristically disobedient to God to characteristically obedient. We're not perfect in this life. The day will come when Christ returns and we finally see him as he is. And we're perfect. That day has not yet arrived. Lord, haste the day. But until that day, yes, we're being changed. We're being changed because we're sons and daughters of Christ or we're sons and daughters of the Father through Christ. If you've never embraced Jesus Christ, that Christ, that gospel, that good news for sinners who can't rescue themselves, I would encourage you to do that even this morning. Place your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We would love to talk with you after the service, so stick around. If that's where you are or you have questions about this, Stick around after the service, and you can meet us at that room out there we referred to earlier, the crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation so we can come alongside of you and you potentially alongside of us as well as we learn to treasure the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Finally, finally, the continued declaration by God's people. I would be remiss if we didn't point this out, and this will be brief. We see this over and over and over again in the book of Acts, verses 32 to 35, notice with me, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So this section wraps up with several people proclaiming the word of God. Judas and Silas, first of all, they functioned in the office of prophet. 
And, and we're told that they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's justification for long sermons. You see it? I see it in the text. Hope you do too. Many words. <laughs> Sorry. But they're prophets. What does that mean? They're speaking revelation from God. They're speaking the word of God. Likewise, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. What are they doing? They're teaching and preaching the word of God. So the church continues to proclaim God's word. Now, let's go back full circle. Back to our question. Here's the full answer. Here's the full answer. How does the church move from severe internal conflict in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, to unity and peace by the conclusion of our text? How does that happen? By the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll add this, through the continued ministry of the Word of God. By the work of the Holy Spirit, through the continued ministry of the Word of God. The proclamation of the gospel is the Spirit's instrument for unity in the church. It's the consistent declaration of Christ that brings people from different backgrounds into one body. And so, church family, I would submit to you that in God's mercy, while we will experience conflict, sometimes it will be severe, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord will allow us to go through. I would submit to you that by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the continued ministry of and the centrality of the declaration of the Word of God, we'll be better because of it. We'll be more unified in the gospel because of it. Well, let's conclude with a portion from one of Martin Luther's hymns, the great 16th century German Protestant monk. He wrote many hymns, one of them to the Holy Spirit that I'm aware of. There are perhaps others as well. Listen to these words. Come, Holy Ghost, God and Lord, be all thy graces now outpoured. On each believer's mind and heart, thy fervent love to them impart. Lord, by the brightness of thy light, I don't miss this, thou in the faith dost men unite. Of every land and every tongue, this to thy praise, O Lord our God, be sung. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we worship you this morning. As you bear testimony to the incarnate Son in our midst and in our hearts, as you draw us into one body for the glory of God the Father, we honor you. Would you continue the work of using every moment of conflict in our life? to cause increased harmony, peace, and unity as followers of Jesus Christ. Grant us as a local church here at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee, to experience your work afresh, O Spirit of God. We pray this in the name of Christ together. Amen.